Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Matthew Mitchell, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Equal Liberty Initiative here at Mercatus, and Dr. Bruce Yandel, Distinguished Adjunct Fellow here at Mercatus. They discuss Bruce's latest economic situation report for December 2021, including the hot topic of late inflation. They also talk about expectations for GDP growth and output, import competition, environmental regulations, and some financial advice Bruce received from his father that is still worth heeding today for policymakers and as we head into the holidays. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to meet with you again today. Today, I'm discussing the latest economic situation report issued in December of 2021 with my friend and colleague, Bruce Yandel. Bruce, how have you been? Man, I'm doing fine. And it's just great to hear your voice today. And it's a sunny day here in mid-December. So it's looking pretty good out there. Excellent. On the other hand, of course, where I am up in the mountains, we don't have enough snow. And so too much sun can be a problem. And that's perhaps a good way to, to kick off the theme of your report. You have a, an entire section dedicated to the two hands, the other hand. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? What's going on with the economy today? Yes, I think you've really picked the right topic when we say it's a beautiful day wherever we might be. Uh, Most people would say, I don't think you're talking about the economy. But on the one hand, it's a sunny day and things look pretty good outside. But on the other hand, if we look at some data on the economy, it's chaotic. But the two-handed analysis or discussion in the report goes back to something that President Harry Truman was claimed to have said that that he wanted to get a two-armed or a two-handed economist because he was always asking a question of an economist and the economist would give an answer, but then after hesitating say, but on the other hand, I followed that section with a few examples of that where, for example, recent reports on on what has happened to family income in association with the pandemic. Some of those reports said that family income has fallen. Generally speaking, people are worse off. That's on the one hand. But then other research and reports that said, well, wait a minute, you're not taking into account all kinds of transfer payments, benefit programs. When those things are taken into account, on the other hand, family income has gone up. There's a similar story about poverty. Again, it's, it's very, it is a very similar story. That is, when you take into account transfer payments, other kinds of benefits that get triggered in association with just hardship, as well as with COVID, then we see a dramatic decrease in poverty. And so there's the on the one hand, on the other hand. And another example that I use had to do with wind energy. And a lot of the glowing analysis that has been given over decades now as to the great promise that we have of of wind-generated electricity and and how good that could be for the environment with respect to carbon emissions and so forth. But then, on the other hand, we learned this year that the wind stopped blowing there in Scandinavian countries that were heavily invested in wind power, and suddenly the wind just stops blowing. So on the other hand, wind's a great idea, but as long as it's blowing, 
you're you may be okay. So sort of a on the one hand, on the other hand, it, it's beneficial to look at both hands. I would suggest one one way to think. Uh, I've always thought about the two hands in economics is that it encourages us to think in terms of every action having both costs and benefits. And so, you know, it's easy to get, if you're a booster for a policy, to look at the benefits and ignore the costs. If you are a skeptic of a policy, it's easy to look at the costs and ignore the benefits. And, you know, this doesn't mean that you can't, if you if you look at both hands and you evaluate things even-handedly, uh, to stretch the metaphor even further, right, you know, that you can't come away with some conclusions, but you have to acknowledge the other side. So, there's obviously lots of controversies going on right now. How do you think that the economic way of thinking can address some of these policy controversies that we seem to be having you know, more and more emotional debates about? They're not even debates. They're, they're sort of yelling matches about. Yeah, great question and, and good background on the question, Matt. I really appreciate that because the it seems to me that by and large, we don't hear any discussion of economic principles. Uh, the notion of weighing marginal benefits against marginal costs is hardly ever mentioned. Uh, most everything that politicians favor, they view as being beneficial, obviously, or they would not be pushing it. Uh, and it's hardly ever. And sometimes it takes a lot of stubbornness on the part of people who say, I want to see some numbers. I want to see the Congressional Budget Office analysis. I want to see a full-blown analysis over 10 years. And people who talk that way are often, they're like a stepchild at a family reunion. You must not have faith in democracy. Don't you believe what we are all about is to make the world a better place? But recognizing that the world can be made a much better place if we take actions where the benefits exceed the cost as best we can measure them, and we put our foot on the accelerator when we find those opportunities and, and hit the brakes when we realize that it's going to tear up more resources than we gain by taking a particular action, uh, then we can make the world a better place. But, but it seems to me there is great scarcity of discussion of general principles, and we might even generalize further by saying, what is the purpose of government? in the first place? Is it just to redistribute income or is there a deeper purpose that we need to recall? So maybe we need to get back to some principles discussion. Well, that's well said. So, you know, one of the controversies I think that is got a lot of people turning to economists now is inflation. So for most of my lifetime, this has not been a topic of discussion. And yet now casual friends and acquaintances who don't know much about my area of research other than that I'm an economist are, are constantly asking me about inflation. Uh, so what should I be telling them? What is your perspective on inflation these days? You know, I think one of the first things that, that we might do and when we enter that conversation is to talk about the word itself. How did we come up with a word called inflation? And the word itself is based on monetary theory or the behavior of central banks. Let's forget about the theory. Let's just talk about the way the world works. Central banks and governments can create money. They can print it. And that's probably the scariest way they create money. But money gets created. And when 
a lot of money gets created. The money supply becomes inflated. And as we measure the money supply and the amount of money floating through the economy, and we observe the number getting large suddenly, we say, we've got inflation. But when I put it that way, people say, oh, no, that's not what we mean by inflation. What we mean by inflation is having to pay more for gasoline at the pump. And, you know, we, you or I might come back and say, well, now there's a difference between one price going up, like gasoline at mm-hmm. the pump, and all prices taken together going up, which is the result of an inflated money supply. When all that money starts chasing the goods and services that are available to us in the economy, which by definition are limited, certainly in the short run, uh, maybe not as limited in the long run. So, you know, those are, are some of the initial thoughts, but I think it is beneficial just to go back to the word itself and say the definition of the word says it is a monetary phenomenon. And so it is something that central governments do. And they have control over, and we get a result that we think of as inflation when we say, oh, the consumer price index has gone up 6.8% in the last month, as the news told us a few days ago. It strikes me when you say that inflation is a monetary phenomenon, and there you're alluding to one of Milton Friedman's most famous quotes, that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. It strikes me that this pours some cold water on views commonly expressed by people on both the left and the right. So on the left, as inflation heats up, you know, you're seeing things like tweets from Senator Elizabeth Warren that's saying that this is all due to the greed of business people. And on the right, as gas prices rise, you're seeing tweets from Republican lawmakers saying, oh, look at the price of gas. Thanks, Joe Biden. So uh, could you shed some light onto how maybe both of these stories are, are missing something. They're a little bit simplistic. In a sense, I would say Elizabeth Warren is probably right. Businessmen are greedy and probably always have been. But I sort of doubt that they have suddenly become more greedy in the last year and a half. I expect mm-hmm. the level of greed is about constant. And we as human beings tend to want more instead of less. Uh, We tend to do things more generously for people we love than people we don't know. And so that kind of behavior is just sort of underlying out there when we look at how the world is working. And so there's a tendency for us to understandably look at the effects of inflation or policy and blame the effect on the broader policy itself. For example, the hundreds of ships that are sitting waiting to be unloaded there at Long Island and on other ports is identified as the problem. That's the reason that we've got rising prices in the stores. Uh, Hardly anyone is saying, you know, there's been a 30% increase in our purchases of goods from the rest of the world in the last year and a half, a huge increase. And then someone says, well, what generated that increase? Ah, All of that money that came into the economy. And so suddenly we seem to see ships that can't unload. And then people say, oh, it's because there are not enough trucks or truck drivers. Well, what happened to all the trucks and the truck drivers? Did they just suddenly start disappearing? Or are we indeed looking at the fundamentals of an economy that has gotten hit with increases in demand driven by printed money 
and people who are tend to be greedy, going out and shopping and trying to buy more stuff. And now they're having to wait for the stuff because in this short run period, there can only be so much response. There is that understandable tendency to look for a culprit. And maybe it's a natural human tendency that we want to say, well, whose fault is this anyway? And uh, then let's get after this boogeyman and uh, let's try to get him to behave in a more socially honorable way. And we won't have to deal with this problem. But, you know, the Mm -hmm. people who say, well, I'm just looking at money flowing into checking accounts in the United States. And have you looked at that lately? If you do, you are going to see something that's kind of scary because there's still a lot flowing in and a lot that is not being spent as yet, which makes you think there's more to come. I think that partially highlights, you know, this idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's never so simple as just finding one person or one group of people and getting them to change their behavior. So, you know, uh, with the idea of business people being, you know, extra greedy now, why, why can't we just ask them to resume their level of greed from 2019 when inflation was not so, so high? And the same thing, you know, when critics of President Biden talk about the price of gas, one wonders why, you know, if, if he's got a button on his desk that, that increases the price of gas, why doesn't he just turn the button the other way? You know, what is what are his powers? What can a president do about inflation? Presidents can do less about most any economic problem mm-hmm. than we would like to believe. And certainly I would think they would like to believe um, their voices matter. I would say the bully pulpit matters, uh, particularly with respect to the behavior and responses of other political leaders or appointees. And, and as the regulatory apparatus, the administrative apparatus of government be- gains command over a larger, a growing share of economic resources, certainly what the executive branch decides and says matters because they probably have control over the largest fleet of automobiles in America, just to begin to to mention one thing. And if they decide that electric automobiles would be good for all of us, it's possible to push the button, as they have, to say, we're going to electrify the fleet. But I would say, fortunately, uh, presidents don't have as much power over the economy as they might sometimes claim to have or wish they had. Mm -hmm. And there's a tendency, not just a tendency, it's probably a rule that presidents or any other people in high positions will try to bring people into the room who agree with them. You have a, a sort of a hallelujah chorus out there saying, have we done the right thing? And I I did what you recommended. How are we doing? And everybody says you're doing fine. It's just we've got a bunch of greedy capitalists out there that are keeping this thing from from heading in the direction where it could. Uh, So so there is certainly a bit of that. But but when I say uh, I'm pleased that elected officials have less power than they sometimes wish they claim to have or wish they had, it's because I think what matters is what ordinary people do in their lives as they organize their own lives and they make decisions and they're trying to make better life better for themselves and to make their communities better. Uh, ultimately, we wake up on Monday morning and it's up to us as individuals to try to get out and earn a living and pay the bills. And sometimes the politicians can help us, but most of the time we just got to go our way and do the best we can. 
Well, and then it strikes me that we all walk around with you know, our own biases and our ways that we interpret these things. In your latest report, you highlighted, I think, an often overlooked work by John Maynard Keynes called A Tract on Monetary Policy yeah. that addresses the way we think and talk about inflation. Can you tell me a little bit about what the point Keynes was making there? I, sh- I should pause. Maybe we both should pause and say, look, we're talking about truly a genius uh, in terms of this man's contributions to economic thought, uh, as well as to probability theory and a lot of other things. Uh, an incredible man who wrote a lot, thank goodness, who generated lots of thoughts that created a lot of controversy. But nonetheless, if we go back to this thing that was written in the 1930s, Keynes gives one of the clearest discussions of of the fundamentals of money and inflation and the purchasing power of money. Uh, When he was writing, those ideas had not been established quite as clearly as they were later, but he gives a very clear discussion. But then he goes on, almost in a uh, prescient way uh, for our times, to say that when we do get inflation, there's a tendency for elected officials, presidents, he doesn't use that example, but there's a tendency for political leaders to blame the problem on greedy business people. Instead of saying we need to celebrate the capitalists and the business people who bring us our dinner and who are producing the goods and services that sustain us, even though prices are rising, uh, instead of celebrating them, they become the culprits. And so you sort of look at them out of the corner of your eye and uh, put the spotlight on those business people and attempt to make them uncomfortable. And they become the scapegoats. Uh, And now if we fast forward to uh, where we are today and we see, okay, uh, President Biden is upset about the price of chicken, pork, and beef. and, And he says, well, I know what the problem is. There are three major meat packers in the United States, and they just have full sway to price stuff the way they want to. I'm going to ask my Federal Trade Commission to investigate these major producers, and let's get them in line. And when the price of gasoline went up, and it was very uncomfortable for American consumers, the president says, oh, I know the problem is OPEC, and there are not many of these major oil companies We've got to put the spotlight on these people and get them to toe the line. And so it was almost an exact outcome, as described by John Maynard Keynes back in the 30s. And, and, and in a way, I think it's just sort of a neat example of a little teeny gem from history of economic thought that we can bring into the present and see if it doesn't shed a little light on our current situation and our responses to new challenges, what we think of as new challenges that may not be very new at all. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So getting back to inflation today, I, another aspect of your report that, I, that really caught my eye was it's uh, called Figure One Price Changes January 2000 to June 2021. Yeah. And it looks at select U.S. consumer goods and services. Can you describe for the listeners, a little bit about what that chart is about and, and what are the lessons we learned from that? Yeah, that's uh, one of my favorite charts. I didn't develop it. A colleague uh, there at American Enterprise Institute developed that chart and turned it out and updated it. But, but here's what the chart does. Uh, it looks across time 
and it looks at specific categories of goods and services. For example, electronic goods, transportation goods, automobiles, clothing, then services, higher education, medical services, health care. What has been the rate of increase in the prices of those different categories of goods and services? And there may be 10 or 15 different items in the chart. And when you look at the chart, about half of the categories are showing rapidly accelerating prices across time. And about half of them are showing rather rapid decreases in cost or price across time. And then when you stare at the chart a little bit longer, you realize that those items that are subject to intense or not just not intense, but are subject to global competition seem to be experiencing falling prices. Those items that where there is hardly any international competition, tuition at universities and colleges, for example, or healthcare and surgery at local hospitals, those are experiencing rather rapid increases in price. And so there's a lesson, I think, in the chart itself, an important lesson. First, it says competition matters. And so if you want to try to discipline the ability of sellers to raise prices, and they all want to, if you want to try to discipline that, then try to find ways to enhance the competitiveness of the marketplace where the sellers operate. And if it's possible to enhance that competitiveness by opening the door to goods and services from outside the domestic economy, open that door as wide as you can. And so that seems to be the lesson that is there. And I guess sometimes, Matt, when we look at it and then we compare what we are doing as a nation right now, and I would say for about the last four or five years, there's been a tendency for us to close the door for the flow of goods and services and certainly people from outside our country, which then takes away from the benefits of that competitiveness. And then there's a tendency for us to subsidize the domestic side of this picture, healthcare higher education, which is sort of the opposite of bringing competitiveness into it. And there's that tendency then to make this chart look, I would say, uglier when ugly means everything we try to buy seems to be more expensive this year than it was last year. That seems to be the lesson that is there. It's one worth keeping our eye on. And, you know, it strikes me that that also kind of goes back to the earlier question I had about, you know, what can President Biden do on inflation? And your answer was not much. But, you know, there is one area where he can, the president does, has been given quite a bit of unilateral control, and it might have an effect. Uh, Elaborate on that a little bit. You're absolutely right. That is, as our government is organized, the office of the president is given the power uh, to negotiate trade and treaties. And so the office of the trade representative is a part of the executive branch. And the president has been even given more power in recent years to move deliberately on his own without having any kind of action by Congress to impose tariffs, 
or restrictions on the flow of goods coming into our country when in his judgment it's beneficial for him to do that. And to be beneficial is a judgment that he can make or the Department of Commerce can make. They have to claim that there's some sort of foreign policy reason, right? Or national defense reason, right? Which it's not clear why the Department of Commerce is in a good position to evaluate that. But <laughs> that, is, that is essentially what, what's happening, right? Good reminder, in the, uh, in the previous administration, President Trump's Department of Commerce was asked, as they should have been, to give a justification for the possibilities of imposing more tariffs on foreign-produced automobiles, particularly those that come from Germany. So they were just sort of picking on one country's exports because the president says there are just too many BMWs and Mercedes in the United States. And so the justification was a national defense argument that should we have a repeat of World War II, uh, we don't want to have to be bringing Jeeps in from enemy countries or heaven forbid any other country who want to produce our own Jeeps. And so we need a viable automotive industry. That's, I'm, I'm sort of making fun of the argument, but in a sense, that was the essence of the argument. We've had that argument in the past about textiles, that we don't want our army to go into battle naked. We want to be able to produce all the clothes that they will need. And so that means uh, let's keep America strong in terms of producing textiles. And of course, we can go on and on with the argument. But in any case, back to your point, the president does have extraordinary powers with respect to trade policy. And it's, it's very important politically because that means a president or one who aspires to be president can make promises to a particular industry or organized labor or a special interest group saying, I know you're being hurt by foreign competition. Elect me and I will do something about it. And it, can, it is a very honest statement. Not only will, I can do something about it uh, as president. And so we do have a real mixed bag now of tariffs on different items with respect to different countries in place. Uh, they have not been changed very much uh, with this new administration where some people thought they might be. Uh, we still have relatively high tariffs on timber products, lumber coming from Canada. We have tariffs on dairy products coming from Canada. We still have high tariffs on aluminum and steel coming from most anywhere in the U.S., even at a time where people are complaining about inflation. It's kind of interesting that those co the connections don't seem to be made in the dialogue. I don't think I have heard anyone on the evening news who's talking about inflation make reference to what our government has done to cause the prices of certain imported products to be higher than they would be otherwise. Uh, so it is a mixed bag, but you're right. It is something that a president can do and in a meaningful way. Well, excellent. Well, we're, we're running up against our time here. I thought I might ask you one more question because it, it is a, one of my favorite parts of your report. And it ha it's a little bit of a personal part of your report. Uh, it's your father's financial advice. Uh, this seems like it's, it's helpful for all of us heading into Christmas. Perhaps it might be helpful for, for some policymakers as well. So what's that advice? Thank you for calling attention to that part of the report because it is a very personal story. Uh, as I indicate in this short piece in the report, my father didn't spend a lot of time 
giving me a lot of advice. And I was saying, thank goodness, he let me learn, as people say, the hard way most of the time. Uh, he was busy making a living, but he had two pieces of advice in terms of economics or finance. The first is pay yourself first. Every payday, even if it's a dollar, depending on your pay, or $5, put something in a savings account and do it every payday. Pay yourself first. And if you pay yourself first and you live a normal lifetime in terms of life expectancy, you'll be able to take care of yourself. When you get old, you won't have to rely totally on social security or someone's generosity. Pay yourself first. And the second piece was don't buy food or gasoline on a credit card. Now, that was ancient times that I'm recalling here. My, my father's point was, you'll burn up the gas, you'll enjoy the dinner, and then you're going to get the bill on your credit card at the end of the month, and all the joy that you've gotten will be forgotten. You just have a bill. If you're going to buy anything, do anything on credit, then Use your credit to buy longer life, longer lived experiences and goods so that you still have this benefit around you when the bill comes due. So pay yourself first and don't use credit on expendable consumer activities. And when we look at our government, when we do things collectively as a people, maybe that advice would still hold. When we go into deficit spending by government, and we always do, then it, sometimes it makes a lot of sense if we are talking about investing in harbors and highways and transportation systems that are long-lived. But it might not make as much sense if we're talking about things that we will eat or clothes that we will wear or things that will be gone quickly and we are left with a 30-year bond to pay off. Excellent advice, both personally and uh, from a matter of public policy. I always enjoy these conversations. Thank you so much, Bruce. My guest today has been the great Bruce Yandel. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.